You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm John Ford, in for Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Fresh off of her chat with Elon Musk, Kathy Wood joins us live to talk Tesla, her outlook for next year, and what she's buying based on it. That interview is just minutes away. Plus, a read on the consumer from the CEO of Barnes & Noble. A third of their business is generated in the last six weeks of the year. But is the consumer on track to deliver that this year, we will ask. And we continue to highlight the 2023 calls that worked and the analysts who made them. Today, an early upgrade on a medtech name despite disruption fears from weight loss drugs. The stock's up more than 30% since that call. The analyst joins us with the name and another one he is bullish on now. But we begin with today's market. And that means Dom Chu has some numbers. Dom. We got some fractional gains. It's green across the screen here for the major indices, John. As you take a look right now at the intraday action for the Dow Industrials, currently up just about two-tenths of 1%, 37,469. The S&P 500, 4764, up about nearly one-half of 1%. Same story for the NASDAQ Composite, which currently sits at 15,022. Now, we are just a stone's throw away from record highs for the Dow and then the S&P 500 and NASDAQ composite for highs for the year. So we'll continue to see if those levels kind of hold around these particular moves. And speaking of some of the green that we were seeing on the screen here, check out what's happening with healthcare, specifically with regard to pharmaceuticals and biotech. Uh, A couple of headlines driving things today. A big deal, $14 billion worth for Karuna Therapeutics, which is agreed to be bought by Bristol-Myers Squibb. Bristol-Myers is up 2.5%. Karuna up about 48%. It's been holding there. The deal is for $330 per share in cash. So there's a higher likelihood, according to the market, this is going to happen with shares currently trading just around $317. Karuna, by the way, has a schizophrenia drug in the experimental stages right now that could be promising for Bristol-Myers. That's part of the reason for that deal. Amgen is being called a top pick by Jefferies. That's one of the reasons why it's up 2%. The iShares Biotechnology ETF, the Spider Biotech ETF, both you can see anywhere up from 25 to nearly 4% right now. So keep an eye on biotech. And then the stock of the day, a massive move lower in shares of a Dow component. Nike, the athletic apparel footwear maker, down 11% right now, just kind of hovering near the lowest levels of the session so far. It was a mixed report. Earnings came out last night better than expected. Revenues were a slight miss, but it cut its revenue forecast for the year amid some slowing concerns about consumer growth, especially in the greater China region. So Nike shares down 11% right now, a bit of a drag, but the Dow is still in positive territory. John, I'll send things back over to you. All right. Instant karma is going to get you sometimes, Dom. Thanks. Uh, The Fed's favorite inflation gauge showing prices rose at a 3.2% annual rate in November, just below what economists expected. Headline PCE was up 2.6% from a year ago, but actually fell a tenth on a monthly basis, the first monthly decline since April 2020. As inflation fears ease, my next guest sees three rate cuts ahead next year. Tom Porcelli, PGIM chief economist. Welcome also with the uh, CNBC's very own Steve Leisman. So, Tom, sluggish growth you expect in 2024. How does that factor in? We do. So, um, you know, this this I think is the, the thing that I think we need to sort of start to get our heads around a little bit because, yeah, you, you, you probably avoid a recession. Again, I think it'll be close and I think there's some risks out there that, that are certainly worth talking about. But but if our base case of, of weak growth materializes, so call it around 1% growth, you know, for uh, the reality is for some people, that's going to feel pretty recessionary. And, and then I think about, okay, well, then what's the catalyst to really sort of get you out of that? You know, we're going into an election year. Congress has split. 
it's going to really be hard to sort of find some fiscal stimulus um, to get us out. So I, I really see more of a sort of a slug for the next year, maybe two. I, I do think that there's a, a catalyst out there waiting for us. That's a productivity. And I've said many times on here and, and elsewhere that I think that, you know, the pieces are in place for productivity to sort of perform really well. But that takes time to develop. So I think for the next year or so, I think things could feel pretty, pretty soft. Uh, things feeling soft, though, Steve, could actually be pretty good uh, based on what people have been expecting. I mean, this PCE number, could it have been better? No, I don't think so. But, you know, uh, what, what Tom is saying has a lot of truth to it, which is the following, that an economy that grows below potential does mean pain for people out there. Um, you know, the, the, if the pie is not uh, as big as it should be or could be, then some people are going to be getting a little bit less. Um, I, I will just challenge the general thesis uh, for today, which is that we do see with the uh, data we had today, the durable goods data um, and some other data that we've had, the personal income and spending numbers, uh, people are revising up the fourth quarter forecast. I know that's the, what Tom's not talking about, but it's just worth putting in there. I've seen um, uh, a forecast for the fourth quarter, which was supposed to be, again, the slowdown from the torrid third quarter, which was near 5%. Uh, now we're looking at two, three versus uh, somewhere between two, three and three percent. Still early days, still a lot of data to come, uh, John. But but the point is that that is an economy that's going at or above potential. And and the only thing that I look, I completely get what Tom's talking about, the idea that there will be some biting that has to do with the, the Fed raising rates, uh, companies needing to refinance, uh, some softening in the labor market. But this slowdown is below potential slowdown has been predicted for a long time, and uh, it has not been the right call, at least all of this year. So Steve mentions yeah. pain. That, that sounds different to me, though, from the kind of pain that Powell was talking about yeah. a few quarters ago that freaked the market out. <laughs> I mean, not to, not to diminish anybody's pain, right. but it's different, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, look. The unemployment rate is going to rise in the coming year. Um, in fact, the unemployment rate is rising now. It's rising very slowly. Um, but over the coming year, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I think people forget because I think they're using jobless claims and I think they're saying, hey, jobless claims remain really low. And I think that's fair. They, they, they obviously do. But continuing claims are actually up. Um, and I think more practically speaking, if you just look at the number of unemployed, right, like the number of unemployed from the payroll report, it, it's basically been rising since April. Um, and, and if you look at the relationship between that and continuing claims, they, they, it works really well. Um, and so if I take a step back knowing that, you know, if I look at the change in jobs over the course of the last few months, and if you strip out health care, um, and, and I think there's an important reason why you strip out health care, because health care is not cyclical, right? That's more secular. So if you strip out health care, you know, what you see is that we've been gaining jobs at about a, I mean, last month we, we grew 10,000 jobs. 10,000 jobs last month, ex-healthcare, and of course, adjusting for, um, for the strikes. Um, over the last few months, we're only gaining around 50,000 jobs right now. And what's interesting about that is, you think about, um, you think about the standard error on that report, the standard error is like 100,000. So you're now within the standard error, meaning you could see a negative. And I think for all those people that are looking for March um, cuts, which I think is very early, I think that's what it would take. I mean, I think you need uh, you know, a negative or something really close to that for the Fed to start cutting in March, which again, I think is wildly premature. We do expect three cuts as you uh, teased at the start, um, but you know, we don't expect that to start until Q2. Steve, how many cuts are most people expecting? Depends on what you mean by most people. If you look at most Fed officials, the average is three. Uh, significantly, not a single Fed official forecast a rate hike next year. 
Um, and and I, uh, I parsed it out. You've got a bunch that are at uh, three or less and a bunch who are at three or more. Um, and it is interesting today, uh, John, that the uh, annualized three month annualized uh, core PCE number came in below the average Fed forecast for the end of 2024. So um, when you look at when you ask about most people, well, maybe you want to talk about where the market is. Mm -hmm. and the market's at like six and a half or, right. or, or, or nearly seven. And so that's a big number that's out there. But if that number does come in or continues to come in below um, uh, uh, what the Fed is forecasting, then they might do more. And my interest right now, um, I have got a, a thing I'm thinking about, John, which is uh, when do you get beyond the Arthur Burns horizon, which is when is that point when you can feel comfortable you've lowered rates and you won't have that reacceleration of inflation that you had in the 70s for which Arthur Burns is, is most notoriously known. You know, and, and, I, and I would just add one thing, because Steve showed a lot of numbers there, and, and I think some of them are, um, uh, I think, really sort of worth just drilling into a tiny bit. Think about, so, uh, you know, I like to look at the three-month percent change annualized. I think that's the, always the right way of looking at inflation, because it gives you a better sense for a sort of near-term trend. Mm. But if you look at the six-month percent change, the six-month percent change is now 1.9%. So you're, you're roughly, you know, at the, the target in that context. I mean, look, you can slice this thing up however you want. But here's the interesting thing. That 1.9% on the six-month percent change, it doesn't even include all of the slowing that we know is in tow from, from rental. Um, and, and so that's what waits for us. I mean, you're, you're going to see these measures of inflation, I think, actually slow more meaningfully than, uh, than so I think Tom, is appreciated at the moment. Yes, yeah, Steve, sorry. Tom, I, I don't know if we have to go right now, but, but the thing is that if you think that's the case, and by the way, there are some Fed officials who think that's the case also, yeah. you would tend to be in favor in that context of earlier hikes. Earlier hikes? You mean earlier cuts? Earlier no, sorry, cuts. earlier cuts. Okay. Sorry, <laughs> so earlier we, cuts. Know, we got to transition away from, right. from the hike thing at this point. Yeah. Yeah, so look, you know, we think it'll happen in Q2. Um, I think that's a really uh, easy argument to make. Again, like I said, to get to March, as I said earlier, I think you need a more prof a more pronounced slowing in the labor backdrop, but 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 if we're right that the labor backdrop just continues to grind slower, um, and you get to this um, this 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 you know sort of very close to two percent year on year by roughly the middle of the year, which I think is very plausible. I think that that's it. That's the magic. I think that's hmm. when the Fed starts cutting rates. So Q2 for us remains, I think, a really good call. Steve, this which is a really... been call for a while, by the way. Just FYI. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Steve, this is a weird environment, and we hear all these stats on, hey, when uh, the Fed goes from hikes to cuts, here's what the market tends to do. Is any of that valid, you think, this time, given how odd so many different factors are you know, compared to previous times when we've been in this position Fed-wise? It's a good question, John, and my, I guess my New Year's resolution is to stop mistaking hikes and cuts. I wish I, you know, I spent several years getting that, you know, writing about, talking about hikes. The idea of cuts is sounding new to me. Um, you, you're right, and I was actually going to point this out that, uh, you know, I've been reporting for a very long time that Powell has insisted that we had to run below potential in order to get inflation down. That has not happened, and one of the remarkable aspects of the third quarter growth numbers is the 4.9% GDP and the PCE, core PCE coming in at 2% for the quarter, and we got a piece of that again today with the November numbers um, that it's come down. Growth has come down, I'm sorry, growth has remained relatively robust. 
remained above potential, and yet we've had declining inflation. That's a unique aspect of this economy, what's happening right now. It is largely attributed to the restoration of supply chains. We have goods inflation, goods, sorry, goods deflation back in, 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 in place, which was the key to our 2%, John. The way it worked was you had goods deflation, service inflation, the two balanced out to being below 2%. We're kind of getting back there. I don't think that means uh, that the Fed can cut extremely, but it means you could get back to a more normal funds rate relative to inflation than you've had before. The question becomes the Fed's confidence with these numbers. It is going to be very difficult. I think Tom is exactly right. They want to see that labor market loosening to have more confidence in it. It's a bit like, you know, talking about landing the plane. You know, most uh, uh, pilots keep the engine running till they hit the runway. The idea of cutting rates while the uh, GDP remains above uh, a potential and the labor market remains this tight is kind of like telling the pilot, hey, you're good to cut the engines a thousand feet up. Not, not a comfortable place for a central banker. That's well, this, is, this has been yep. a Sullenberger-style uh, <laughs> landing so far from the Fed, exactly. which not a lot exactly. of people saw coming. Uh, Tom Porcelli, Steve Leisman, thanks. Thank you. And of course, the question remaining, what does all of this mean for equities? Well, my next guest has been saying all along inflation is transitory. The big problem now is deflation. That's the basis of her strategy for investing in 2024. She's also been making news with her ex-Spaces chat yesterday with Tesla CEO Elon Musk on a wide range of issues from passive investing to the future of AI. Joining me now with an exclusive interview on the exchange is Kathy Wood, CEO, Chief Investment Officer of ARK Invest. Kathy, uh, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Good to see you. And it's Thank especially, you. Mary, it seems for ARC because you're up 46% since, since Halloween, right? <laughs> and um, more than 70% year to day after a couple of rough years. So what shifts do you make here? Well, what we've been doing during the tough years when interest rates were going up and shocking the system, especially long duration assets, we concentrated towards our highest conviction names. Now that we have had a very nice move in the market and the, and and interest rates and inflation seem to be under control, we think we do believe we're going to see deflation next year and that the Fed will have to cut pretty aggressively. Um, but we do think we're on the other side of the horror show we went through. And uh, we think that companies that are comfortable with deflation as technologically enabled uh, companies focused on innovation are, are going to do very well in, in the next few years. Well, that doesn't sound any different from what you usually think. So are you going, right, are you going riskier? <laughs> yeah, well... Many people would say what we do in in the downturn, concentrating towards our highest conviction names, is a risky strategy. It, it usually works out very well for us. We have a scoring system that really helps us along. Mm. Now we're diversifying more. Okay. And 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 we should uh, we sh we expect the IPO window to open up again. There are a lot of companies out there starved for capital, have been waiting for their liquidity event. Uh, so it's a good time to diversify and uh, and also to add back in some of the names we sold as we were concentrating, uh, perhaps because of more clarity uh, in their own outlooks. But that sounds like, and correct me where I'm wrong here, it sounds like you're saying if you're diversifying beyond your highest conviction names, then you're going into names that seemed riskier for you, for whatever reason. So why were these types of names lower conviction in the past? 
Uh, are they smaller caps in the public market? Are, do they have a more uncertain path to profitability? Are they perhaps in, in second or third position in the markets they're trying to capture? Well, uh, some might might surprise you. Uh, one of the ones we've added back is Meta Platforms. Um, it's not a big position. Um, we've been taking profits out of some of our uh, uh, stocks and uh, reallocating back to Meta. Why? Well, when we sold it, we were not crazy about the metaverse strategy and how much capital uh, Meta was allocating to that particular strategy. When Mark Zuckerberg pivoted effectively into his AI strategy, we think they're in a brilliant position from an AI point of view. And they're really pushing the envelope on open source hmm. AI, uh, which, uh, which should help them in their own business. Well, Kathy, Another that, one, that one confuses me because Zuckerberg pivoted more in his messaging than he did in his spending. He's still spending a whole lot on the metaverse. He's just not talking about it as much. So, and the stock has come back a long way from when it initially fell. So why buy it here if he's still doing the same things that you sold it for? Well, he he is he's de-emphasizing metaverse in favor of much more focus on AI. I think ChatGPT, GPT-3, 4 have lit a fire uh, under a lot of companies and and you know, a lot of companies have had aha moments. Okay, this is this is where uh, innovation is really going to take off and take off a lot faster than we expected, whereas Metaverse is making its way along. So uh, we just think they're in a really good position with all of their platforms and all of the information. Information, proprietary information is so important when it comes to um, AI and large language models. What, if anything, do you do in AI-driven hardware you famously didn't make a big bet on NVIDIA. I guess most people wish they did if they didn't. But from here, there are a number of other chip company names that, that have potential in AI. There are higher-end hardware players like Supermicro that have perhaps more potential in AI. Are you interested in hardware or are you focused on software as the AI play? Well, first of all, I'd like to correct the record. Uh, we initiated our positions in NVIDIA when we started the company 10 years ago, when it was roughly $5 on this stock, uh, we still own it in our more specialized strategies. But as we were concentrating towards our highest conviction names, NVIDIA's uh, rate of return expectation, five-year compound annual rate of return expectation, dropped below 15%. At the same time, some of uh, our software companies like UiPath uh, Twilio, their uh, uh, compound annual rate of return expectation, based on our research, was much, much higher and rising because those stocks were falling. For every dollar of hardware, uh, we spent AI hardware, um, we believe uh, it will pull through 10 to 20 times as much software. And so, yes, we did go more towards software, and we went to companies that we knew had uh, four, four um, they, they met four criteria for us. One, they had deep domain expertise. And in the multiomic space, life sciences, uh, ever more important these days. Mm. They have AI expertise. They're taking this movement, this breakthrough seriously. 
Three, they have good distribution, uh, preferably global, uh, perhaps with partners. And then beyond that, proprietary information. We look at every stock in our portfolio through this AI lens. And the proprietary data assets in our portfolio, we think, are superior to those of most other portfolios that are not as focused holistically on Mm. AI as we are. Okay. I got to shift the conversation to ask you about the Spaces chat with Elon Musk. Of course, your, your Tesla call years and years back really put you on the map, really. People were like, ah, Tesla's going to do what? Come on. And, and it's done what you said. Uh, Musk, not too thrilled with the idea of passive investing. Unpack what you took from that, because for most investors, passive investing, at least for, for a large part, if not most of your portfolio, was just smart. Yes, well, he did give John Bogle uh, a compliment, basically saying, you know, from uh, an investment point of view, bringing down the costs uh, with these indexes was a sensible idea. It had just gone too far, and we couldn't agree more. Um, The pendulum after uh, the tech and telecom bust, and even more so after 0809, what we saw happening in the market was a shift towards extreme benchmark sensitivity, extreme benchmark sensitivity, so much so that during 21 and 22, what were most uh, portfolio managers and analysts doing? They were selling our stocks that are not in benchmarks for the most part, and they were buying the benchmark stocks. So the pendulum shift has gone so far, and at a time now when we've got five major innovation platforms evolving at the same time and converging, creating super exponential growth expectations. But the market's not doesn't understand this. It's not doing the kind of research that we are. First principles based uh, on on uh, these new technologies. The 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 research centers more around these indexes and hmm. and quantitative analysis. I think that's what he meant. Okay. That you have to look to the future uh, if you really want to invest the right way. I, I can understand uh, saying don't be on autopilot. I think sometimes retail investors make wise decisions by deciding to go, as you, uh, you, you mentioned Bogle, deciding to go with more passive strategies, uh, more affordable strategies. I want to ask you also about Bitcoin and crypto. Quite a rocky couple of years. It's been on the upswing along with a lot of uh, the riskier trades in into the end of 2023. What do you do with it in 24? Well, it was very interesting. We learned something very important about Bitcoin in 2023. In March, during the regional bank crisis, when the KRE, the regional bank index, was imploding and Silicon Valley Bank went under, Bitcoin went up roughly 50% during that crisis. And at that moment, we had proof positive that Bitcoin is not just a risk on asset, but it is also a risk off asset, a flight to safety, a flight to quality, as others are are saying. Um, That is quite rare. And what was the flight to safety? These or this decentralized, fully transparent uh, blockchain technology is not subject to counterparty risk the way our banking system is. Uh, and I think that was an aha moment for a lot of people. Uh, and then, of course, we have the the speculation about a, a Bitcoin spot ETF 
And uh, of course, we have uh, one of the filings and, and we're ready uh, whenever the SEC, if the SEC, whenever the SEC gives the <laughs> Go ahead. But we also, and uh, I don't think many people know this about us, but we, with our partners, 21 Shares, which is the largest pure play ETP provider in the world with $2 billion in assets uh, and 40 different funds, uh, we actually launched uh, five futures-based strategies, which the SEC has allowed. Uh, and so we've got the pipes working, and uh, okay. uh, from an infrastructure point of view, we are ready. Kathy, finally, if we put aside the, the trades that you're known for, maybe some of those highest conviction names, what is your highest conviction investment call for 2024? You know, we have a, a five-year investment time horizon, but I, I will tell you, if you look, and we publish these every day, if you look at the top five stocks in uh, our portfolio. Coinbase actually um, took the number one uh, slot, it's up 400% this year, uh, from Tesla, which is up roughly 100%. We still have a very high degree of conviction, but of course we take profits along the way. Recently we did add back to Tesla. Uh, UiPath, Zoom, Roku, Block, uh, Roblox, CRISPR Therapeutics in the multiomic space. We, you know, they, we just, the FDA approved the first gene therapy, CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing therapy to what we believe cure, and it does seem to be curative, sickle cell disease. The next one we think in March will be uh, beta thalassemia. This is life-changing innovation. And so uh, we think that the, the multiomic space has been uh, hurt the most during the past few years by being uh, in a cash burn situation. It's a very early technology generally. And, um, and, and we think therefore it is the, has been the most disadvantaged and probably inefficiently priced of all of our strategies. Okay, so that means the last one you mentioned is your highest conviction. Well, I'm, I'm just giving you our top. Okay, uh, that's what I thought. You weren't gonna pick a favorite kid for me, even yeah. though I tried. Kathy, thanks. Coming up from Book Talk, as in TikTok Book Talk, yes, that is a thing, to Rapid Bookstore Expansion, CEO of Barnes & Noble joins us with his read on the consumer this holiday season and what he sees in store for next year. Plus, the Magnificent Seven have dominated the market this year, and one of our guests says they could do it again in 2024. He makes his case, brings his favorite three names out of that group. And as we had to break, let's get a quick check on the markets, all green, the NASDAQ leading them all. Exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Remember when Amazon killed the bookstore? Well, not quite. Book sales hit a record in 2021, thanks in part to Gen Z and BookTok. With book sales still holding strong, Barnes & Noble has opened 30 stores this year with plans to open at least 50 more next year. James Daunt is the CEO of Barnes & Noble, was part of the hedge fund that turned around the UK's largest bookstore, bought out Barnes & Noble two years ago. Joins us now on the exchange. James, what happened? Why are bookstores back? 
people are reading more, which is uh, very good news if you're a bookseller. Um, and I think we've hopefully have become rather better at uh, curating our bookstores. They're friendly, nice, uh, and very busy places. So, but it can't be. Uh, it can't be just that, James, because people have Kindles and other e-readers that we thought, many thought they were going to be reading on, but it's paper books in physical stores. Why? Um, why? Because a, a real book is is still a durable product. Uh, they're fun things. And if you want to choose one um, and you're not quite sure what to read, a bookstore is a fabulous place in which to, to find them. Um, and as we've concentrated on books, because uh, we sell an awful lot of other things, but as we reconcentrated on books, we've done much better. It seems like this shift from uh, products to services in the economy that we saw post-pandemic actually benefited bookstores, though people might think of books as products and not services, because the bookstore ha has become more of an experience, no? It's become more of an experience, and I think across all age groups, but particularly for us amongst uh, young adults, um, you know, we, we, we find our stores absolutely full of young people, uh, really from teenagers up to young adults, um, enjoying, I think, uh, also the companionship that you find within a bookstore. So it's that it's the physical space, but it's also it's being part of a community um, and the enjoyment of, of that experience. So uh, when I was in high school, we used to, I was a little bit of a nerd, a little bit. We used to have book day on Saturdays and go to Barnes and Noble or Borders. My friends and I, we would just like look at books and hang out and talk. I know, sounds, but it sounds like you're saying that's what young people in this age of smartphones and, and TikTok are actually doing physically in person. It is definitely what they're doing in, physically in person. And, and we don't just see it around books as well. I mean, vinyl has come roaring back. Um, our, our music cell, even, you know, dare I, and, and incredibly dare I say it, we're selling more CDs these days. So there is a return to the real physical product. And I think um, as, especially amongst younger people, um, I'm obviously of, of, a, of a vintage that, that is way past that. But uh, our customer base is really invested in the experience of the physical product. Well, a bald head doesn't tell you everything about somebody's age. Let me say, though, I, I wonder what you do with the data on the back end, even as people are having this in-person, in-store physical experience, how do you harness that to make sure that the physical bookstore doesn't get Amazoned again? Well, one of the things we've done is completely decentralized. So we leave each store uh, to curate itself um, through the bookselling team that's within it entirely as they wish. We no longer have central direction. And I think that's kept all of our stores with a distinctive personality which reflects the individual communities in which they reside. So that's changed us a lot. You know, the Barnes & Noble that you find in one location will be very different to the one you find in another. They're united by believing in books and curating books and presenting books, but they do so very differently in, let's say, the Upper East Side of Manhattan to a, a store in, in um, Texas or um, in, in Wyoming. All right. James Daunt, CEO of Barnes & Noble. In 2023, with a strong year, great to have you on. Happy holidays. Coming up, one of our next guests upgraded this MedTech stock back in early October, calling the disruption from weight loss drugs overblown. Now the stock's up more than 30% since that call. We will reveal that name, and he's back with another name that he's bullish on now. The exchange is back in two.
Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Pippa Stevens, and here's your news update this hour. In the wake of the United Nations Security Council vote approving aid to Gaza today, Israel's ambassador to the UN is criticizing the move, saying the world body's focus only on aid is, quote, disconnected from reality because Israel is already allowing aid to be delivered at scale. He says the UN should be focused on the humanitarian crisis of the hostages. Workers at a Wells Fargo branch in Albuquerque just became the first employees of a U.S. megabank to unionize. The milestone comes as Wells Fargo is facing a wider labor campaign. An Alaska branch called off a vote to unionize this week. Branches in both Florida and California have also filed petitions for union representations. And the Golden Globes is rolling out what could be the most expensive award show gift bag ever. Curated by the lifestyle magazine The Rob Report, it's estimated to be worth half a million bucks and includes luxury stays at five-star hotels around the world, a $2,000 bottle of tequila, and a $250 cream from Brad Pitt's luxury skincare line. John, I would love to get my hands on one of these bags. And that's why you're not getting one. (laughs) (laughs) Pippa Stevens, thanks. Coming up, it looks like maybe Wall Street wasn't too naughty this year. Santa Claus has arrived. All three major averages on pace for yet another weekly gain. What is it, cookies and milk from here for stocks or coal in the stocking? That's next. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are on track for an eighth straight week of gains. Uh, You know, uh, the Magnificent Seven have done well, more than doubling in 2023. My next guest sees that momentum continuing into next year for those names, which have lagged in recent weeks. Joining me now, Andrew Slimmon, Senior Portfolio Manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Andrew, why? Because some other folks are saying it's small caps time to shine. The S&P has been too top heavy with the MAG7. That that, that is true. You know, if you look back to uh, the beginning of the year until about mid-November, they led the charge. But what's interesting, John, is that for the first year off the low, there's always selling. People sell off the low. And about a year after the low, investors pivot and they start to buy. And emotionally, it's really hard to say, oh, I was wrong, I shouldn't have been selling, I should buy, and then go buy the all-time high list. It's easier to buy the laggards. And so that's what's happened uh, since that pivot in November is it's everything that had underperformed. And I'm not saying those stocks can't continue. I just think these stocks have tremendous fundamentals and they have lagged recently. So look, I'm a core manager. We have growth and value stocks. A month ago, I was said, hey, I think financials, industrials, they've lagged. I'm just looking, saying, I think these stocks have great fundamentals. Uh, I dismiss the argument that they're up a lot and therefore not attractive because many of them, uh, NVIDIA would be the exception, they're, they're not much higher than they were at the end of 20, uh, 2021. So uh, they've certainly up a lot this year, but they got uh, hit pretty hard last year. So I think that's that's another reason why I think there's more fuel in the tank for these stocks going into next year. So they've lagged recently, but they weren't due for some lagging. Why, why do they have to, um, I, I can understand saying they're not unattractive, but are they especially attractive? Well, I think one of the, the misnomers in this business, I've been in this business a long time, John, is people take gospel 
what the forward estimates are. When someone says, oh, a stock is expensive based on this PE or cheap on this PE, they're using someone's estimate, forward estimate. And the reality of these seven stocks is the estimates have been way wrong. And those estimates have risen aggressively this year because companies are delivering better than expected. So I, I look at that and I think that will probably continue next year. Well, and I don't think these these estimate the, the PEs are stretched if you assume that Wall Street is still playing catch up. We just had your top picks on the screen. I got to ask you about the one that's not like the others. TJX, TJ Maxx and Home Goods Parent, not like Microsoft and NVIDIA. Why do you like it? Well, I mean, look, the, some of the retailers have done very, very well. Uh, recently, Costco, Lululemon, and TGX, which has been a great long-term performer, a phenomenal stock, has lagged because they love to bring down expectations into earnings in the stock, uh, has lagged the other big retail winners. And I think that presents an opportunity because historically, uh, they do like to temper guides and then and beat. So that that again offers an opportunity in a big long-term winner that has lagged recently. All right, buy it for a bargain, I guess. Andrew Slimman from Morgan Stanley, thanks. Thank you. Coming up, Lilly and Novo on monster runs this year as weight loss drugs take off, but they're not the only diabetes-related names seeing big gains. One top analyst bets there's more room to run in the space in 2024. That is still ahead when the exchange returns. Welcome back to The Exchange. ARK Invest CEO Kathy Wood giving us her high conviction picks for 2024. Just a few minutes here on The Exchange. One name she's adding back into her portfolio is Meta, saying the company's in a really good position with AI in particular. Another name she likes is software maker UiPath, which is also the third largest holding in the ARK Innovation ETF. Finally, CRISPR Therapeutics, after the FDA approved its gene editing therapy for sickle cell disease, Wood calls the news life-changing innovation. She expects more good things for the company. Of course she does, because she's, she's owning it. Well, coming up, Jeffrey's analyst Matt Taylor made the bullish case for Insolet ticker PODD here on the exchange in early October. Shares are up more than 35% since that upgrade, but in a different diabetes management company, that's one of his top ideas for 2024. He's going to join us to reveal that name next. Welcome back to The Exchange. My next guest upgraded Insulet to buy in early October. Told us here on The Exchange that concerns that weight loss drugs would impact the need for insulin were overblown. He nailed that call. The stock has surged more than 30% since then. The street's taken notice with Morgan and Baird upgrading it this month. And he's staying in the insulin space, saying tandem diabetes care. That was the mystery chart we teased. It's one of his top ideas for 2024. Back from more is Matthew Taylor, senior analyst covering MedTech at Jeffries. Matt, uh, you had a $240 price target on Insulet back in October. It's at $215 now. First of all, what do you do with it here? Look, we still think Insulet has upside, obviously, not as much as when we made that upgrade call. Uh, and we like the diabetes space and think there's more recovery to be had from the GLP-1 overhangs that nailed these stocks back in the late summer and early fall. Um, but with the same theme, you can play tandem is another insulin pump maker 
that's much cheaper than pod and we think has a lot more upside. So we've been pushing clients to shift into tandem with a lot of the same tenets of the pod thesis, playing it in a cheaper way and with tandem having a lot of catalysts in 2024. And when did you put this call on? Because since around November 10th, it looks like tandem has doubled to its current level. Uh, is it how far how far can it go from here? We still have about 36% upside to our price target of 40 bucks. Um, and we, we have been pitching clients on it for the last month or two. Tandem was nice enough to join us in our conference in, in London in November. And we really thought they sounded good on the trends in, in Q4 and very excited about a lot of these catalysts, starting with a new product, a new pump that they're going to be launching in early 2024. So what are your most important couple of theses, you know, narratives for 2024 then? Because, I mean, these stocks are getting, and they're knocking on the door of some of the price targets where you are. So I wonder, how are you making your decisions, your filters for what to buy next? Well, Tandem's not, right? So that's why we're pushing folks into to Tandem. We still have significant upside there. Right. I think the main thesis points to think about with any of the uh, diabetes names, including Tandem, would be, look, this is a good growing market. Uh, there's a lot of unmet needs here that you think the whole market's going to grow with increased penetration. That's driven by a lot of great technology advances in both the pumps and the CGMs that are now combined into closed loop systems, or some people call them the artificial pancreas that provides additional benefits for diabetes patients to, to manage their disease and achieve benefits clinically and cost savings. Uh, and then with Tandem specifically, they've been kind of out of the market the last few months and it's created a pause because they got early approval for this new pump called Moby. It used to be called T-Sport and it's much sportier. It's smaller. It has a lot of different wear options and uh, basically fills this void that they've had for the last several months. So having a product, a new product is always good. But then on top of that, what's really significant for the pumps, including Tandem, is this combination with the CGMs. Hmm. The artificial pancreas has long been hailed as kind of the holy grail of diabetes management. And now that this is combined not only with Dexcom, but soon to be Abbott, they will have lots of options for patients to explore, to, to enjoy, to improve their diabetes management. So we think it's going to be a big catalyst for the space and for Tandem specifically. Matt, how are you distinguishing between the types of companies that will be affected by the rise in popularity of weight loss drugs fundamentally and those that won't? I mean, there, there are some surgeries that we've seen at least a pause in uh, patients getting them perhaps because they want to try the drugs first, but at the same time, we're hearing from the likes of Medtronic's CEO that he expects for those who are on weight loss drugs to need other treatments and therapies after to make sure that they stay healthy and, and don't you know, lose muscle tone. That's right. So we've actually written a whole series on this called Why This Doesn't Make Sense, and we're on uh, part 10 now. So it'd be probably too long for this segment to go through all the reasons why we think most of MedTech will not be impacted by GLP-1s. But if I had to boil it down to a few key tenants, it's really demographics. So the population will continue to get bigger, older, and sicker despite GLP-1 use. Uh, they do help a lot of people, but their absolute risk reduction benefits in terms of uh, doing away with cardiovascular events, for example, in select are relatively small. And then there are other challenges with the drugs in terms of real-world use, like adherence, compliance, cost, side effects. All those kind of things really prevent GLP-1s, we think, from being a risk for most of MedTech. 
There are a couple areas that we do think could see some pressure. We've already seen that in bariatric surgery. So that's a, that's a given, that's happening. But we view that as more of an air pocket than a long-term risk. And then the other areas where we do see some risk are in sleep apnea, specifically with CPAP, which we did a deep dive on a couple of months ago, and perhaps in kidney disease. We don't, we don't really know that yet because we haven't seen the full results from the FLOW trial that were released. The top line data were released in early October. So we need to see the full results from that, and that's okay. a little TBD. But almost everything else, we think there's very little risk. All right. Um, well, there was a bit of a scare there, but it seems like all sorts of things are shifting in this market. Matt, thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the time. Quick market check. All the major indices are higher. The Dow, uh, a little better than flat. The S&P up a third of a percent. The NASDAQ just slightly better than that. And that'll do it for The Exchange. Power Lunch is next after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.